Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers and government and practitioner partners to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. I'm Michael Donovan, the Associate Director of Evidence to Impact Collaborative at Penn State. In this episode, we'll be discussing the complex world of aging. With me today, I have Dr. Marty Slinsky, Director of the Center of Healthy Aging at Penn State and Professor of Human Development and Family Studies as well as Stephanie Cole, Director of Special Projects and Executive Assistant at the Office of the Secretary at the Department of Aging in Pennsylvania. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. We just uh, start off with just kind of a, a, a quick introduction kind of on, on backgrounds and think about what, what you bring to the table in this conversation today. Marty, if you want to start things off. Great. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of human development and family studies, and my work in the Center for Healthy Aging has focused on Uh, Alzheimer's disease and prevention, as well as looking at ways in which to promote brain health, um, uh, focusing on on, uh, not just medical types of solutions or or things we typically think of as promoting health behaviors, but more broadly social impacts on brain health. And the work in the center reflects this really uh, broad perspective. That's great. Thank you. Stephanie, any any, uh, background on yourself? Sure, Michael. Um, as you mentioned, I'm the director of special projects at the Pennsylvania Department of Aging, and um, one of my primary functions is um, focusing on emerging issues in aging. So, some of my projects include working on um, initiatives around grand families, grandparents raising grandchildren, mostly due to the opioid crisis, um, LGBTQ aging issues, and currently. Um, our department's working on its um, ACL required four-year state plan on aging, so we are trying to make um, the best um, plan that we can to ensure that we're capturing all of the many needs of our older adult population in Pennsylvania. Excellent. Thank you so much. So this is an incredibly complex problem and question and, and exploration, right? Um, just to kind of start things off and to kind of orient ourselves in the conversation, um, In 15 years, by 2035, the U.S. will reach a cultural tipping point where there will be more people over the age of 65 than age 18 and under. This has such incredibly historic implications uh, to our society, to our communities. Um, Before we get there, how do we actually, uh, as different communities, measure aging? It's a complex question. Where do we where cutoffs? I don't know, Marty, if you want to talk from an academic perspective. Yeah. So aging is a lifelong process. It's not just something that happens to us when we turn 65 all of a sudden. It's something that begins perinatally when in conception, something that begins to we begin to see the effect when we're in our 20s and 30s. And very importantly, the types of activities we engage in in middle age can really lay the foundation for a healthy or unhealthy second part of our life. That's great. And then, you know, obviously it brings major challenges to how a government breaks down the domains of how they implement the policies, right? So how does the Department of Aging in Pennsylvania kind of understand the aging process and work with that spectrum? Sure. So um, many people are familiar with um, the Medicare uh, federal program, and that starts at age 65 for most people. Um, But for us at the Department of Aging, we are guided by the Older Americans Act of 1965, and it defines an older adult as anyone over 60. But of course, we see in the people that we talk to, 
even even people over 60 don't want to define themselves as old or aging. Yeah, and this presents um, some interesting problems that we face as scientists and that I think as policymakers face as well, that information that we need to inform policy for people when they're 60 and above, a lot of that information and the data we need is created when they're in their 40s and their 50s. So if we just start looking at people at age 60, we don't have as broad a picture mm-hmm. as we need to try to figure out how to serve them. Mm-hmm. And are there particular uh, domains of policy that are most central to that work? Is this is this the health agencies that hold this? Is this, I mean, transportation movements? How, how do we think about better integrating our aging populations? Right, all of the above. Yeah. And, and I think... Because, you know, the statistic you described earlier, we really are reaching a cultural tipping point. And I think we need to rethink the types of boundaries and silos that exist in in not just in in government, but in academia. So when we think about the problems um, that an aging society uh, presents to us, as well as the opportunities that it presents, we need to think about housing. We need to think about higher education and how that can be reshaped to serve uh, the needs of people who are, you know, moving into that age category. So we need to think about all, and, and as well as transportation. Mm-hmm. So we need to think of how we can get all these different systems, domains of scientific study and, and sort of uh, policy to begin talking to each other. That's Stephanie, great. how does that kind of link in with uh, some of your your perspective at the Department of Aging? Well, if I could share some additional statistics, and this one I just heard the other day, and it was really kind of sobering to hear this, that in 2030, the first baby boomers are going to start turning 85. So every day, starting in 2030, baby boomers will be turning 85 years old, which are the folks that have the most needs out in the community. And in Pennsylvania, our population is already... Um, almost one in four people are over 60 years old. And by 2040, um, we'll have 4 million or one in three people, nearly one in three people will be over 60 years old in our state. And so um, to Marty's point, yes, um, the systems do need to talk to each other. And, um, you know, one of the things that, Pennsylvania is doing right now. Um, one of the governor's initiatives uh, is his customer service transformation, which is going to promote all of our systems talking to each other so that um, our citizens' data will be shared across at least state systems so that there will be kind of a, a one stop where um, information is integrated together as for consumers of state services. Um, so that that is going to be a huge win. But, but secondarily, um, and, and this I think really speaks to what you were talking about, Marty, is, is to be able to provide, you know, kind of a holistic system of care across the entire care spectrum. So whether it be um, health, social services, um, that these the health information exchanges that exist in Pennsylvania, we at the Department of Aging are, are we believe that this is very important, especially in the older adult community, and that this type of work is going to be a big win and efficiency for providers who will work with older adults and also the older adults as receivers of services themselves. 
And I think that um, Pennsylvania really has a unique context particularly because of our uh, geographic distribution Mm -hmm. uh, and rural challenges. So in some of our our earlier conversations, Marty, we discussed the the challenges of uh, trying to reduce isolation and promote integration. Mm -hmm. This is particularly challenging in in communities that are already vulnerable, that are uh, hardest to reach for a variety of reasons, whether that's geographic, economic, uh, cultural or social reasons. So how do we first, maybe from the academic perspective, how to really hone in on aging communities that are really, really hard to reach and particularly vulnerable? Uh, that's a great question. And I think one thing that we can bring as academics, as, as scientists, is to reframe some of these problems, some of these questions in ways that reflect, you know, new information and what how we understand them now. Just a word about social isolation um, and why this is so important to study. Uh, people who are socially isolated are at an increased risk for cardiovascular disease, uh, other types of coronary problems and premature death. The level of that risk, if you are isolated and lonely as an older adult, is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. The degree of risk conveyed is on par with smoking as well as being obese. If someone were smoking 15 cigarettes a day, we would run up to them and say, stop this right now. But if someone's lonely... We let them walk by sure. and, and we don't feel that same sense of urgency. And I think it's time to recognize that we this is an epidemic. It's a crisis and it's something that we really need to direct our concerted efforts. Estimates suggest anywhere between 10 to 43 percent of seniors, people, retirees, people 65 and above are lonely, at least some of the time. Wow. Oh. And and this is universal, right? Yeah. I mean, we all age. We all are going to be part of this this population. Yeah, uh, you know. And and what's important about this is is we can look at residential status and the number of seniors who are living alone. You know, I think it's it's now about thirty thirty eight percent. That places you at risk for social isolation. Not everyone who is living alone is lonely and isolated, and there are people who are living with family who also feel lonely. So we need to go beyond what we can just get from the the regular types of demographic data that we might collect as part of, you know, uh, Medicare visits, um, healthcare visits, and really try and think about better ways to get the data we need to identify um, people and and hear their voice um, because we're not listening at this point. That's great. Stephanie, what is your take from kind of a governmental perspective on what the Department of Aging and and overall government can do to better reach the most vulnerable and and hard to reach populations? Well, I have to echo um, what Marty um, said about social isolation. Um, We, a couple of years ago, our department participated in the NCIAD, its National Court Indicators Survey um, conducted by advancing states. Um, And we went out into consumers' homes and interviewed face-to-face 400 people who receive our services, who receive in-home services in the community um, three or more times a week. And I actually had the unique opportunity to participate in those surveys, and they were fairly structured, but we did allow for an open dialogue say what you want to say, basically, at the end of the interview. And the number of older adults that conveyed how difficult loneliness is to me was quite staggering um, and, and difficult to hear. 
Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is it is definitely a problem, um, and, and we see it every day. Um, we we recently updated our department's mission because we feel that this is is such a important topic to have kind of at the front of our minds all the time. Um, and our mission at the department is to promote independence purpose and well-being in the lives of older adults through advocacy, service, and protection. And I, I just want to draw out the word purpose and and how key that can be to um, alleviating social isolation is giving older adults a sense of purpose by involving them in programming like intergenerational programs, um, programs that get them out into the community or give them a sense of community. Um, this is really critical to um, removing those health risks and behavioral health risks that um, that Marty was talking about. So that's a very forward thinking way of framing the problem. It's really great to hear that that that's how you're thinking about trying to address this this important issue where the the view of what we need to do for people who are retired and elderly is more than just take care of them. Um, that's the bare minimum. What we want to do is help them flourish. And by making them feel valuable, integrated, um, their social roles change once we retire. And a lot of people are left rudderless, not knowing what to do. Um, the first month of being retired is it's great just to sit around and hang out, mm-hmm. but then you need something more yes. than that. Um, yeah, I, I can't help but thinking, but think about the, you know, not only is there value to better integrating our aging populations by reducing those health health risks or other risk factors to their own health, but the value of integration to the rest of the community, right? I mean, it's yes. remarkable to think that we would have a, a lifetime of experience that uh, is that goes untapped. That could be beneficial to other other you know children growing up, mentoring. I mean, what, we speak to that. So the way you frame that problem is again why just even having this conversation is so valuable because it gets us to look at the situation in novel ways to address the current needs of, of society. So, for example, when we think about how to reduce isolation, you might think about senior centers, very important. You might think about you know. Uh, social groups and clubs, very, very important. Let's think about something really crazy. Um, the notion of co-housing. So co-housing is when you develop, um, a community where you, uh, have people from different generations. The communities are designed to have people from dinner, different generations cohabitating, maybe in single family homes or in apartments. But the idea is there's shared community space. Um, it's easier for people from younger generations, older generations to interact together, to dine together, to go to movies together. This also serves needs, um, transportation needs, mm-hmm. um, makes it easier to car- carpool, makes it easier to arrange child care and elder care. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 165 such communities in the United States and 140 are being planned. To my knowledge, I don't know of any here in Pennsylvania. Um, State College or other locations where some of the branch campuses are for Pennsylvania would be ideal locations. But to begin to think about that, again, we need to get different agencies talking to each other and partnering with academics who can sort of inform what kind of data we need to determine the viability of these and their potential benefits. 
Yes, I totally agree with that. I would like to share, though, with you a program that we're doing that's addressing actually a couple problems many older adults face, um, and that is a problem of um, being basically house rich and income poor. Um, many older adults in, in the community have a house that they've paid for um, and, and find it um, on a low income, difficult to pay their property taxes and, and then end up, they can't afford to keep their house anymore. Um, and we started a few years ago a pilot housing program called SHARE, and that stands for Shared Housing and Resource Exchange. And um, we kind of think of it as a sort of um, e-harmony for housing, if you will. <laughs> and we've had a bunch of successful matches, and the idea is that um, through housing counselors that, that are um, – work through our area agencies on aging. We piloted this in three um, counties, Pike, Wayne, and Monroe. We um, have an older adult who's willing to share space in their house with someone who has a need for housing and has perhaps a service that they can provide. Maybe they could help cook meals for the older adult or do work around the yard in exchange for perhaps a reduced price in rent. Um, so basically a win for both people. There's companionship there. We received so much great feedback from the matches that have been made so far, and that's expanding in five more counties. That's fantastic to hear. It's very forward thinking, very innovative. And, you know, maybe one of the things these uh, these podcasts can do can and help create potential partnerships. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you're working with academics, we would love to talk with you about this, um, being able to ascertain outcomes, um, use this as, as a springboard mm -hmm. for trying to address some really interesting questions. I'm um, sure our team would love that as well. Yeah. Especially as, as the, uh, the rigor that the scientific community can provide to evaluating outcomes, then that can provide you know, gravitas to applying this elsewhere, right? Doing cost benefit analysis, yeah. for example. Um, yeah. yeah. Seeing how we could, how this could not only expand in Pennsylvania, but also potentially become a model for, yeah. for application elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Speaking of Stephanie, are there, you know, your colleagues in other states, do you, are you aware of any um, particularly innovative or, or kind of um, forward thinking orientations that other states have taken and where, where is the, the conversation on a national level, as far as you know? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because there are states um, who are trying to reshape the conversation um, around aging. And I will call your attention to, um, interestingly, Massachusetts is a really good example of a state who is very forward thinking with their aging population. And um, Boston, in particular, had a... I, I believe they called it an elderly commission or an elderly um, council. And um, in the last year or so, they rebranded that council to call it the Boston Age Strong Commission. And and it just kind of went a whole different direction with it. Um, and, and we're trying to kind of do those things here in Pennsylvania, rebrand and, and rethink the way that we talk about aging and, and 
again, to Marty's point, that it's a lifelong process, aging. It's not something that starts at a certain age. Um, another um, state that uh, I believe is doing some good work is Colorado, and they have um, a publication where they talk about lifelong Colorado, where they're really discussing this is a place where you can be born, grow up, spend your entire life, and retire, and be happy here in Colorado throughout your whole existence. Um, and so those things are really exciting to me. That's, that's great. You know, thinking about in the space of higher education and the role that universities can play in in being a partner in, in some of these exciting uh, programs you're describing, Stephanie, uh, University of Minnesota, for example, has a program called the Advanced Careers Initiative to where people who are at or around retirement want to come back to university, get some retraining or re-specialization, either just because they're interested or maybe because they need to continue to earn income so they can do something a little bit more than what they could have done otherwise. Um, University of Texas or Texas at Austin has something called the Tower Fellows Program. Stanford has a distinct, distinguished career program. All of these are geared toward the people 60, 65 and above who are now facing this second part of their life that maybe they didn't really plan for. And now it gives them a chance to reinvent themselves. Um, so I think there's a role in which higher education can partner with uh, government agencies to really reinvent how we think about this last half of our life, the second half of our life. Mm-hmm. Well, we think that's wonderful. We've been um, trying to get out. We're close, as you know, being in Harrisburg to the Penn State Harrisburg campus. And we've actually been going out doing um Um, panel discussions with students just to try and promote this industry to, Mm -hmm. to young adults, um, to show them that, that the aging industry is, is a growing industry. Mm -hmm. And it's it's exciting to me. Mm -hmm. And let's, let's kind of change gears a little bit and think about kind of how we talk about aging. Um, I think the the salience of this issue can be lost in the you know the intensity of 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 exigent problems, right? I mean, today we're hearing uh, in the news about the coronavirus uh, rampaging across China and, and expanding Italy and and South Korea and, and the rest of the country uh, and the rest of the world. So, um, in an, in a really complicated and uh, loud policy environment, how do we motivate the conversation towards this very, very complex and important issue? I don't know, either either one of you would like to... Well, let Stephanie go first on that one. <laughs> well, um, we, we always try and keep focus on the fact that we need to have older adults at the center of everything that we do. So we stay guided by that. Um, And, you know, honestly, there's not anything controversial about the Department of Aging. I I don't think anyone in our society, if you explain to them why it's important to take care of our older family members, our older society members, there's no one who argues with that. Do we take our eye off the ball as a society? A little bit. Yes, I think so. But we need to remain steadfast and 
steadfast and focused on that. Um, that I, I guess maybe that's an overly simplistic answer, but um, that's kind of how we stay focused on it here. Yeah, and you're correct that it's not a controversial topic. Um, nonetheless, when you look at tensions in society and disagreements and and where people argue a lot, oftentimes uh, people on both sides of those issues no longer fall along sort of racial divides, but these are generational divides. And I think one of the important steps in being able to really talk about how to create a society where there isn't this type of um, separation between people of different generations is some of the programs you were talking about earlier, getting people from different generations to interact with, live with each other. It's interesting when you think about age, it's the one characteristic of an individual that's still considered socially acceptable and even desirable to segregate on. Um, you will go to parks and and sometimes see signs, no adults allowed without children. Right. So that's it. That's one example. Another example might be, you know, residences that are specifically geared toward people of certain ages, even our schools. We're segregated into classrooms where we don't interact with people more than one, a couple of years younger, older than us. So I think we need to really think about how we can change the structure of society to promote these types of um, interactions and exchanges. And then I think everything else will be a little bit easier to talk about. Um, and, you know, one big piece of this, which I'd love to talk a little bit more about, is we should really be addressing kind of the elephant in the room here that this this population, um, this community really uh, kind of is affected by significant amount of stigma, mm -hmm. uh, both externally from societal factors, as, as we kind of touched on, but also internally amongst the the aging population themselves. You know, that saying things like, well, that's an old person. <laughs> that's <laughs> they're not me creating an other. And I'm wondering how do you guys foresee from your respective corners of the, the uh, ring here, how do we talk about breaking down the barriers? Well, I can start and, and talk about that um, using our senior centers as an, as an example. Um, we call them senior centers right now. We have in Pennsylvania 550 senior centers across the state, and there are about 11,000 nationally. Um, and we've there have been different focus groups done um, as to how, how we get the baby boomers to want to participate in the senior centers where people can go and get a free congregate meal. They can give a voluntary donation, and it's a healthy, well-balanced, and quite frankly, delicious meal um, with other, other folks in their cohort. Um, and um, honestly, the, the name Senior Center is a turnoff for many people. Um, we, we feel the Department of Rebranding and, and just listening to, you know, who's going to use those centers? What do they want? And, and not try to figure it out for them. Um, many of the centers are, you know, kind of, for lack of a better term, you know, not dull, but, you know, not very ornate. Recently, I was with the Secretary of Aging, Robert Torres. We were visiting area agencies on aging, and we were in Somerset um, County, and we visited uh, the, um, the senior center that's attached to the area agency on aging, 
and they were folks were at lunch and there were there had to be close to 75 or 80 people there they had an entertainer there and we got to see blueprints for a beautiful new center that's going to have wood and stone interior and fireplaces and things that make it more like a club than a senior center and i think the rebranding and updating of community spaces that aren't um branded as senior centers is going to be a key to making it feel like it's part of the community and not just a place we put our older adults the way i think about this is it and how I can affect this is as an instructor, as a teacher. So, um, you know, in, in classrooms, I talk about, uh, when I teach a course in aging or we call it adult development, um, not just aging and adult development to first recognize that stigma goes across both ways. And so older adults may view people from different generations in ways that aren't exactly accurate in the same way that people from younger generations think about older folks. So um, one of the things we try to do is first um, get people to realize that they're already aging. So to some extent, we all belong to the same group um, and get younger people to imagine what their future lives will be like, how to think about planning for their future lives. So we do exercises where um, people have to, uh, for their term paper, they write their future biography of what's going to happen to them after they graduate all the way up to when they die, incorporating some of the scientific concepts that we talk about in class. And that changes people's perspective to think about aging as not other people are old, but this is something that I'm going through right now and going to go through. Um, so it gets people to not think about the other Mm-hmm. And that type of distancing, that's that's the idea behind it. But I think we have to just change how we think about aging. Um, yeah, and, and that, you know, your, your comments bring me to another idea that, you know, comes around instruction and training, mm-hmm. thinking through the, the pipeline for future job opportunities, right? As we, the explosion in population, as we discussed, as boomers enter their, uh, their later years, uh, the drastic societal need for home health care workers. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this is a what will become a, uh, a workforce problem, right? So how do we increase excitement among our young people to enter in these spaces? Uh, and how what kind of structural factors from from a policy perspective, can we induce, you know, incentivize the growth of this area? I don't know if that's for both of you to kind of talk through. I can start a little bit about some of the, the challenges that, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. When younger people are thinking about going into healthcare or some sort of service profession, the majority of individuals are thinking about working with youth. And that's great. We need that. But it just doesn't come to mind what it would be like, what, what could a possible career look like where I'm working primarily with older adults? There are certain types of services that are stereotypical that a very old individual who's frail might need, and those aren't for everyone. But understanding what an activity director is at, at a um, senior retirement community looks like. When people go into majoring in kinesiology or nutrition and they're thinking about going into uh, physical therapy or rehab or training, the idea is they're going to be working with young athletes 
and more likely they're going to be working with someone like me. <laughs> so um, getting them to think a little bit about that and also realize where the job opportunities are. Um, market pressures, as based on what you're describing, we know where the opportunities are going to be. Um, and I'll share that the, the shortage of direct care workers is already at a, a critical level, low level. Um, it, it's a critical issue in the state. And, um, you know, there's ways to address it. Part of that is increasing the minimum wage, that the, the wages that these workers can earn are, are just not enough to um, sustain them. And um, also being able to have see that there is a career path, that it's not, I'm going to be stuck doing this forever. And there's, there's not really a delineation. Oh, I start out as an aide and then I can become a CNA. Maybe then I can go to nursing school and become an LPN. There's not a, uh, a well-defined path um, for direct care workers. So um, our Pennsylvania Long-Term Care Council came out with a blueprint um, for direct care workers um, with some recommendations on how, how this can be improved. But um, yes, it's a, it's a critical shortage. And again, I think in education, um, there could be some partnerships there. I know that there's a lot of careers where clinical hours are required of students and hey, time as a direct care worker would be perfect. That's great. I think there's also you know, opportunities um, within government as well to expand kind of coalitions, thinking through the, the workforce development uh, infrastructure inside of the office, the uh, agent the department of uh, labor and industry as well, thinking through how do we, we better um, prepare our incoming class of, of workers for the jobs that will, will be present tomorrow. Right. Well, we are coming to our time, but I want to provide uh, each of you with an opportunity for any closing thoughts, uh, any questions or any ideas you want to, it's been burning in your mind trying to get out there. So maybe I'll, I'll give Marty the opportunity here sure. first. Um, a lot of the problems we were talking about and potential challenges, we have the talent to solve in, in Pennsylvania. We have the um, innovation, we have the good ideas, and we have the people willing to work hard. Um, think about the effort that's being directed toward other types of problems like the opioid crisis. So to really tackle what's facing us, it, is it okay if I use the F word? Um, <laughs> funding. <laughs> yes. So, yes. So this costs money and there needs to be the collective will to direct resources toward this problem. We can have all the good intentions in the world, but unless we have the support to do this, we're not going to be able to build sustainable solutions. We can do this. I'm confident we will. I have, I have a feeling that Stephanie will echo your sentiments, but Stephanie, I agree. <laughs> I, I agree that the administration that I work for um, and our secretary, um, we, we strongly feel that partnerships and collaboration and, you know, especially with the academic community is key to um, expanding our reach and um, ensuring that the good work that you do as researchers can also um, be, be better implemented in the community by folks that can ensure it's out in our area agencies on aging and being implemented when we know that it can be successful because it's been tested. Um, so, yeah, I think we're um, on the same page there. Great. 
Well, and with that, uh, we will bring this episode to a close. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Marty Slinsky, Director of the Center for Healthy Aging here at Penn State, and also Professor of Human Development and Family Studies, as well as Stephanie Cole, Director of Special Projects and Executive Assistant at the Office of the Secretary at the Pennsylvania Department of Aging. Again, I'm your host, Michael Donovan, the Associate Director of the Evans to Impact Collaborative at Penn State. And this has been another episode of the Evans to Impact podcast.